Welcome to Vintage Church Sunday Morning Gathering. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm glad to be here. I was a little under the weather on Wednesday through Friday-ish. So I'm happy to be able to work hard to prepare a sermon for us and to be able to deliver it. I had a headache throughout the entire preparation just about, so... If it's if this is not if this is not something that you like to hear or substandard that just it was a headache just remember that uh, I'm so thankful that we get to open the Word of God today we get to continue uh, in First Peter and also this thought of living a life of blessing in a world of evil living a life of blessing in a world of evil we started this thought process. In 1 Peter 9, uh, 1 Peter 3, verses 9 through 12, we'll continue that today in 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Would you, before we approach God through his word, would you pray with me? Father God, you are holy, you are mighty, there is none like you. From beginning to end... Before the foundations of the world were set, you reign. Lord, it is with that knowledge that we put our trust in you. It is with that knowledge that we understand that your son was the way, the truth, and the life from the beginning before Adam ever fell. Your son is the way, the truth, and the life now. And will be the way, the truth, and the life forever. We put our hope in him. We put our trust in him. What a glorious thought it is that Christ Jesus has forgiven us, of our, has forgiven us our sins. And not only that, but has raised us together with him. Lord, help us during tumultuous, during difficult times. Help us to put our faith and our hope and our trust in Christ alone. That during the most difficult times of our lives, our hearts, our souls, and even our mouths will sing hallelujah. Lord, we praise you for the work you've already done in our lives. We expect you to do more. We anticipate the great results. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Last week we started, uh, we spent a lot of our time discussing the commitments that we must make to living a life of blessing in a world of evil. We'll continue that today. I have three more commitments and there will be seven total uh, commitments that I think, and I, I don't think that this is an exhaustive list. This is not necessarily all inclusive. There will be more that is required of us from the Bible. There will be different facets and different aspects of living a life of blessing in a world of evil. But I think that we have set last week and today we will set seven really solid foundations to living a life of blessing in a world of evil. So I'll add three to that list today. Um, I would like to remind you, uh, not that you needed the reminder, but 
We live in an ever-increasingly difficult world for Christians. And if we're going to overcome, and if we're going to be able to face the many challenges ahead of us, we will have to face those in great strength. We will not be able to face those challenges in timidity. We will not be able to face those challenges in hesitation. Um, I want you to understand that every time I get up here and preach to you, I plan on preaching to you the ultimate and highest measure of what we can do to follow Jesus. Now, you must understand that we won't always hit that goal. We won't always hit that standard. But what do we do if we don't set ourselves up for the highest standard? We set ourselves up, I believe, for failure. We need to set lofty goals as believers. We need to make firm commitments or else when we face the difficulties of this world, we might stumble. We need to make the decision and the commitment before the difficulty. We need to make the decision and the commitment to follow him before the times of trial, before the times of trouble. Because if we are caught in those times having to make decisions as to whether or not we will follow the Lord, we will almost likely always stumble or fall. But when we make these commitments, even if we get knocked down a little bit, even if we stumble a little bit, we know how to recalibrate ourselves. We know how to remeasure. We know how to measure ourselves against what is true and what is right and what is good and how to get back to our ultimate good, and that is Christ Jesus himself. So last week we discussed some really strong commitments. I'm going to give those to you today. I'm going to repeat them twice, but I'm going to go over them very quickly. If you, didn't, if you weren't here last week and you want them, you can ask me afterwards and I'll give them to you again. Uh, but four commitments that I gave you last week to being a blessing in a world of ever-increasing evil. Or in a world of evil. The first is this. I'm going to be a blessing even when I am not blessed. I'm going to be a blessing even when I am not blessed. Being a blessing on this earth for believers is not conditional upon how much blessing is poured into you. Being a blessing is the only condition for being a blessing is being in Christ Christ living and reigning in you, and then out of the abundance of the heart of that, your mouth and your life and everything lives towards Christ. A sign of spiritual weakness and spiritual immaturity is only being a blessing when you're being blessed. It's only returning favor. A sign of spiritual maturity is being blessed being a blessing regardless of whether blessings are flowing to you or not. I'm going to be a blessing even when I am not blessed. Being a blessing is not conditional. I'm going to speak good and true words. What we learn in the Christian life is that it is going to be necessary at times to speak good and true words about people who refuse to speak good and true words about you. But the floodgates of evil, the floodgates of reviling, the floodgates of falsehood don't open to you because someone else speaks them upon you. 
You don't get the freedom to do what an evil person might do because it has been done to you. But instead, we are held to Christ's standard. And that standard is whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is true. Think on these, but not only think on these, do these things. I'm going to speak good and true words. And again, that is not conditional upon whether or not those good and true words are spoken to me. Again, these are high standards. These are lofty standards. And these are standards that I often fail to keep. But these are still standards that we should set so that we should know where our hearts, our minds, and our actions should lie. I'm going to speak good and true words. I'm going to act in a holy way during all circumstances. Just because our circumstances have gotten us down, uh, Peter has been talking about all of these difficult circumstances with the bad boss, the bad government, the bad husband, the bad wife. It doesn't give us the excuse to stoop to that level. The way to maintain holiness, the way to maintain cleanliness is not to jump in the mud. I'm going to act holy. I'm going to act in a holy way during all circumstances. Of course you're going to fail. No one's perfect. Of course you're not going to live a holy life all of the time. But you, we must know, we must have a commitment to, know and have a commitment to the standard that is set by God. For us, <clears throat> I'm going to trust that the Lord hears my prayers. I'm going to trust that the Lord hears my prayers, even if things are not going my way, even if I don't see the end in sight, even if difficulty and struggle and maybe even persecution seems like a constant. I'm going to trust that the Lord hears my prayers. Today, we're going to add. Three more commitments found in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Our verses today are a continuation of what has been taught in the previous verses. Um, but this is the first time in 1 Peter that Peter mentions persecution of the faith. It's the first time that persecution is directly taught. Suffering, facing bad leaders, facing bad people, facing people who revile you, who speak evil against you. Um, those things have been taught, but... Persecution, in the direct sense, for your faith has not been specifically taught. But now he mentions persecution specifically and the suffering that comes from your faith. I want to remind you that as you make these commitments, we must remember that life is hard and you will fail. Life is hard. And John MacArthur stole this thought from me. Uh, and I was listening to a, I was listening to a sermon of his the other day as it related to this, uh, and he said something that I've been saying for a few years, so I can only assume that he stole it from me. But uh, it's uh, it's ever increasingly more difficult to live for the Lord in this day and age that we live in. Not that the world is more evil, or that it's more difficult for we as Christians to live for Christ than Christians of past ages. But the internet and access to other people has greatly complicated things for us. The world is hard, <clears throat> but now we know about it. In every circumstance, in every instance. 
At one time, the only problems that you had were the ones that you experienced or could see with your own eyes or maybe even through a newspaper or some other source. But it was always local to semi-local. It was almost always local to semi-local. You got some of the world's problems. Now every problem that everyone has in the world is our problem. From injustice to natural disaster to uh, the most terrible things that you could possibly know. And I honestly believed, coupled with, side sermon, coupled with a bad diet and lack of exercise, this has to be one of the causes, the greatest causes of depression and anxiety in the world. Bad, bad diet, no exercise, and the fact that we know every single problem that's going on in the world at every single second of every single day without a breath from it. It is ever increasingly difficult to maintain hope, to maintain a positive attitude in a world where every problem comes to your face. Now, it isn't all bad that we know all of these things, right? Because we get to see good in people also. We get to see great things that happen in people. We get to hear stories of revival and stories of how the Lord is working and and see other people who are following the Lord. And also people can reach out and help. Great differences have been made in things that would have otherwise gone unnoticed by the mass population. So it's not that it's all difficult or it's all bad. It allows people to make great impact from a remote place with very little physical effort. But the knowledge that we have of everything in this world, we know all of the terrible things as they happen now. As they happen. And we have to feel those things. To add to that, we have to deal with the possibility of persecution for the faith that we have. And we know it's real. We've seen it regularly. And if you believe in Peter's definition of what persecution is, we know that it happens in this country. We know that it's happened on this continent. And we know especially that it happens in uh, in sometimes more terrible ways uh, in other countries. It can be a lot to take. We can lose heart. But the solution to seeing all of this difficulty, the solution to the knowledge of persecution is not to shrink away. It's not to bury your head in the sand on every issue. It is certainly not to fill our life with so many distractions in the hopes of avoiding the reality that we face. Our choice is then must be to make a plan of action that challenges us and stick to that plan. (coughs) To influence the culture in our lives and with our life more than the culture influences us. And to not be so easily swayed. To not be so easily moved. I do believe that sticking with these seven commitments that we have made over the last two weeks, that we have drawn from what Peter is saying in 1 Peter, really doing those things of the Scripture, we can fix our eyes on Jesus. We can have strength. We cannot be, to the point where we might not be so easily swayed in these great times of difficulty. (coughs) The key, though, to all of this is not just making commitments. It's not just doing some things. But it is what I just said, fixing our eyes on Jesus. 
the cornerstone of our faith. He is the centering point that brings us back to hope and faith and a reasonable mindset. He is our strength and our ever-present help in times of trouble. If our God is for us, who can be against us? If the Lord is on our side, whom then shall I fear? Knowing this should give us all the foundation that we need to walk in faith during some very difficult times and to find our faith and hope when we have lost them. I think we gave four solid commitments last week, and I'm going to give you the other three right now. The fifth of the seven is this. The fifth commitment of the seven is this. I am going to think and live in a hopeful way. Look at verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteous, righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. As I was writing this sermon, I was reminded by my wife that I am not an optimistic person. And she could tell that she did something wrong when she said that to me because I looked at her and I said, you don't think that I'm optimistic? Uh, I mean, I think I'm a realist. And uh, she kind of rolled her eyes and, uh, you know, you get the point she was trying to make. She said it without saying it. But it has been ever increasingly something that I have become convicted about. I am a realist with a pessimistic lean. Uh, I am, it happens more about situations in life than people. I do believe, and I'm not going to look at my wife because she might be rolling her eyes again, but I, and y'all shouldn't either. I do believe that about people that I'm generally optimistic, but, but maybe about situations I'm a little more pessimistic and, uh, or, or realist, realist with a pessimistic lean. Uh, but it is something I've been everly, uh, I've been ever increasingly more convicted about. Since we have such a great God, since He is in control of all things, since He has us, why should our mindset be to automatically go to the more negative side of things during difficult situations? Why do I have to assume the worst in difficult situations, <coughs> and sometimes even about people? I think a lot of it has to do with personality. A little bit has to do with the way that you were raised. And biological makeup. I really believe that. I think that some of those things are given to you. Um, you may not believe this, so I'll, I'll give you this and it may not help you, but I'm still going to give it to you. There was a study done uh, on mice. And... Uh, it, this study would be inhumane to do on people. That's why it was done on mice. So, uh, and it's in mice main to do on mice, I guess. So, anyway. So, uh, what, what was done on mice was this. They, they had these mice, and they gave them a cherry blossom scent. And every time they gave them a cherry blossom scent, the mice, they electrocuted the mice. They shocked the, the mouse. And what they found is, is they used the, the um, seed of the male my, mouse that was shocked to inseminate a female mouse. And what they found is in the offspring of that mouse, and even some tendencies in its grandchildren, was a 
um, a hesitancy, an aversion to the smell of cherry blossom. Now, I think it would be foolish to think that your mentality, your um, the way you walk, the way you act, the way you think, whether it's positively or negatively, I think it would be foolish to think that we are not affected by generational sort of things, which means that if your grand, what you were experiencing, what your grandfather was experiencing or your grandmother was experiencing when you were born, if that study carries over, could be affecting you potentially today, even if you didn't have much relationship with them. I think that that's a very true possibility. I think that our environment, our biology, I think all of those things matter. But really, um, so that matters in every other sinful thing that we do. We are sinful. We are sinners. But we cannot choose to commit or not commit sins based on environment or biology. We cannot say, well, I'm going to be a pessimistic person naturally because that's the way I was raised. That's the way I am. That's the way my mind thinks. No solid Christian would say, well, I just have a tendency toward this thing and I I need to deal with it in the way I need to deal with it. And maybe even if it's not in the way the Bible prescribes me to deal with it. So as I've been under conviction about this for a while... I need passages like this and really the Psalms and a host of other verses to let me know that I am not supposed to live in a spirit of negativity. That my mindset is not supposed to automatically go towards the realist or the negative, but towards the hopeful. In verse 13, Peter makes sure that we know this. Verse 13 is a rhetorical question, which simply means in our context, that it's not worth answering because it has already been answered. It's so sure and so true that it's already been answered. In this instance, it isn't supposed to be answered because it has already been answered in Jesus and what he does, what he has done and what he does. He says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is connecting a question in verse 12 for the eyes of the, this is connecting our question in verse 12 for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and he hears and his ears are open to their prayer since the Lord is watching since the Lord is hearing the prayers of the righteous who is there that can harm them in a world where harm is constantly in front of our face and it's found <coughs> at every flick <coughs> of our finger excuse me on social media. These verses should assist us to turning even the most pessimistic, realist Christian into an optimist, or at least optimistically leaning. Christian, the Lord is on your side. He knows you. He hears you. Who or what can harm you? Of course, Peter gets this from a lifelong tradition of the people of the faith that have proven it over and over again. Who the Lord has protected. He gets it from the verses of scripture that he would have certainly memorized a long time before Jesus came. We think about verses, uh, many of them. We think about verses like Romans 8.31, which is Paul saying, If God is for us, then who can be against us? If you ever need some positivity in your pessimistic 
sort of standpoint. Just open the Psalms and start reading until you can't read anymore. Psalm 50, the Psalms are chalked full of affirmations of God's goodness to us. Psalm 56 says, my enemies will retreat when I call to you for help. This I know the Lord is on my side. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? Proverbs 3, the Lord is on your side and will keep your foot from being snared. The same is true in Isaiah. It's true in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Michael, Micah, Hebrews, Timothy, Acts, Philippians, John, and a host of other New Testament messages. With that knowledge and the Lord's continual faithfulness, we have to, we have to ask our question. Uh, the same question that Peter asked again. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do good? The, the question is rhetorical because the answer is so obvious. With that in mind, we need to commit <coughs> to being hopeful. <coughs> because we are met with immense hope in our God and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to live a hopeful life. Peter gives us two things to consider under this point in our life that leads to hopefulness. Our life of blessing in a time of evil, in a world of evil. Uh, this life is zealous for good. And a life that is zealous for good is unimpeachable. It seems like in our government that every president from Donald Trump to the end of the world is going to be impeached probably. But a life that is zealous for good is unimpeachable, which means charges cannot be brought against. Verbal abuse and reviling will deflect off of us mostly, and we will have an answer for it when it doesn't. Do you know that the best medicine for slander and verbal abuse is to live your life in a way where it doesn't matter? To live your life in a way that it doesn't matter. I tell my kids all the time when they come to me and they say, well, she called me this or she said this about me. And I say, is it true? And if they say no, then I say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now get over it. Now, that's not, as, that's not as simple as it is because I know words hurt, and I say, I know words hurt you. But you cannot be affected so strongly about what is not true about you. If you are zealous to do good, your character will be unimpeachable. Regardless of what people say about you, they will not be able to bring charges against you. That whole, I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, that's stupid. That's a farce. Words do matter. And so you need to be careful about your words. You need to be careful about how you choose to speak to and about people. You will be affected by what people say about you, but you should be affected way less when people are saying slander and lies about you that are not true. And you will be affected way less by the words that people say when you live a life that is unimpeachable. <coughs> that is zealous. That is zealous to do good. A life that is zealous to do good is unimpeachable. He says something else under this. There may be a time where people still persecute you even when you are doing good. But you will still be blessed. 
It's interesting Peter is using persecution here, but he isn't talking about physical abuse. Literally, the words he is saying is mentioning verbal abuse, slandering, abusive speech. He's not talking about getting beaten by somebody. He's talking about getting abused for your faith. You are living a life of blessing, but you are being verbally abused. You're being slandered. You're being called out. You're being ridiculed in the public public square. (coughs) That's sort of for all of you who think that Christian persecution doesn't start until you get beaten or die. Persecution is considered when you are living your life of faith for the Lord, and someone in some way is an enemy to you for that. Nevertheless, a life of blessing in a world of evil is still expected in times of persecution. Peter is saying while persecution will likely not happen to everyone, we see that at the end of this section of verses, there will be those who do well and are still persecuted. But even in those times, we will still be blessed. We will still have no fear of them. We will not be troubled by them. How is it even possible? How is it even possible that we can have no fear? We will not be troubled when we are doing right and still being persecuted. He answers that question in verse 17. He says, if it is the will of God, The first way it's possible to trust the Lord, even in times of persecution, even when you're doing well, is to know that what you are facing is the will of God. We know that what we face is the will of God. Peter might as well have said in verse 13, if it's the will of God for you to suffer, even while you are doing right, you, or verse 14, you will still be blessed. The will and plan of God is where I want to be, folks. If it's God's will for me to be poor and persecuted, whereas on the other end I can be comfortable and I can be carefree, we should choose to be poor and persecuted and in the will of God. It's better to be one day in the will of God, in the house of God, in the courts of God, than it is to be a thousand elsewhere, comfortable and carefree. (coughs) How is it even possible to be hopeful in the face of persecution? Well... I know that if I'm here, and I'm especially, especially if I'm living for the Lord, especially if I'm zealous for what is good, this is where God has me. And if I'm where God has me, that's where I want to be. We know that what we face is the will of God. We also know that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Friends, he is one. He has won already. It's over. What can man do to you if the battle is over and the war is won? And then we know that finally, one day when he returns, he culminates that victory into one final victory, trumpet being sounded. Drew, thank you for that image as we were singing it as well with my soul. The trumpet being sounded, the the victory horn, the gathering of his people. We've won. If that doesn't cause you to live hopefully, mostly hopeful, I don't know what will. I believe that what has been said is enough to get our minds into a thankful and hopeful place. But if it isn't for you, if it's not enough yet, 
Read the Psalms until your lack of hopefulness goes away. And don't stop. And I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic. I'm not kidding. I'm not trying to be exaggerative. I'm being serious. Read the Psalms every day until your lack of hope, your lack of thankfulness goes away. And then maybe don't stop. If you need it, if it goes after past 10 or 15 or 20 days, you probably need it. So just keep going. Read a Psalm every day. Meditate on the good things God has done for you. You know, one of the things about my children that makes me angry and that I love at the same time is that when I'm trying to get mad at them and they give me a big smile or they're apologetic or they hug me, it's very difficult for me to get mad at them. And I think it carries over in the same way. If we are constantly thinking about what good God has done for us and is doing for us, if we are constantly in an attitude of thankfulness and hopefulness, it's hard for us to get mad at the present difficult situation that we're in when we measure it up to all the good that God has given and done for us. I want to give you a second thing. It's the sixth commitment that I'm going to make. I'm going to be prepared to defend the hope that I have. Look at verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Although these commitments are difficult and they become more difficult in the times of trouble and especially the possibility of persecution, the, me- the next commitment gives us a process to have hope and to be blessed in a world of evil in times of trouble. And that process starts with taking our focus off of ourselves. Peter is saying, who can harm you? What can harm you? But if you find yourself in a situation of persecution, here's what you do. You first Take the focus off of yourself. Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. If you are having a pity party, if life is not going your way, if you can't seem to get past anxiety or depression or even another person, fix your eyes on Jesus. I cannot promise you the rescue will come right away, but I can promise you the rescue has come and will come. I can promise you where the rescue will not come from. The rescue will not come from self-loathing. It will not come from doubt. It will not come from sorrow. It will not come from disconnection to the church and to the people of God. But it will come from fixing our minds on Jesus, having a reverence for him, drawing closer and closer to him. I have experienced it and I have seen it a thousand times. Christ is often not the first turn we take, even for the most dedicated Christians. We often exhaust every resource we have outside of Christ and then turn to him. Can I tell you, many of the resources God has given us for sadness and anxiety and depression and anger and all of those other emotions are wonderful and good and should be used. But out of order, they will always fail us. It is always Christ in our counseling. It is always Christ in our coping and not those things and then Christ. Peter tells us to turn our mind to Christ (coughs) first and our attentions to him. When we turn our minds to Christ, we turn our minds off of the situation that we're in and to the great God who is over the situation. He says, turn our minds to Christ first. And then he says, 
Turn your minds to others. Turn your minds to helping others. Always being ready to make a defense for a reason for the hope that is in you. There's a little key here. The way you do this, the way you are ready to make a defense, the way that you are ready to give reasons for your hope is to have your mind fixed on Christ. And then think about the plight of others who share your struggles and then focus your attention on others. Peter is saying if you are being attacked, if you are feeling helpless or hopeless, fix your mind on Christ and then share the reasons for the hope that you have to keep going in this life. Share them with others. I may not be hopeful now, but this is why I have hope in the end. I may be down in the dumps now, but this is why it won't take me all the way down. Is there anything in the world that would get you out of a slump better than seeing lives changed and you being a part of that? I don't know of anything that energizes the church more than seeing someone come to Christ. Seeing someone whose life is, even if they were a Christian, seeing someone repent of their sins and change their life and commit to the Lord with all they have. Is there anything that would get you out of that slump better than putting your attention on someone else and seeing God work in them? It's this great, beautiful thing that happens where we focus on Christ, we focus on others, and we think we're helping others, and God the whole time is helping us too. So we turn our eyes upon Jesus. We make a defense of the reason for the hope that is in us, even if we don't feel it as strongly this time as we did at other times. The word defense here is apologia. It is literally a gospel defense, a gospel proclamation. I can promise you in the lowest points of your life, the way out is always fixing your mind on Christ and then others. And I don't want to hear one person say, well, you don't know my anxiety. You don't know what I'm facing. You don't know my problems. You don't know my past. Anxiety and depression and evil and hatred and anger and all of those thoughts do not define you. They are not who you are unless you make it that way. Your past does not define you unless you let it. And while therapy and coping mechanisms and family and support help, and while God uses all of those things, there is literally nothing better in the world than the mind that is fixed on Christ and then fixed on others. As we draw closer to Christ, he gives us the normalcy that we see in others and won't so badly. He gives us even days instead of the ups and the downs all the time. He gives us freedom from sin instead of the massive failures and then the good victories. Have you considered that people that you don't think can relate to your problems are just people who are further along the path than you? They are people who have learned along the path to trust in Jesus and to put others before themselves. Have you considered that it's not that they can't relate to your problems, it's just that you aren't quite where they are on the path? It might not be that you're alone in the fight. It might just be that you aren't as far along. Thinking on Christ and putting others first is the quickest and most God-honoring way to turn our life 
of sorrow, our life of anxiety, our life of depression, our life of hate, our life of fear, our life of anger, or whatever it may be. If you think otherwise, you lack faith and you need to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Honor Christ as Lord with reference, with reverence, and share the gospel truth. How do you most effectively do this? With gentleness and respect. Oftentimes when we share our faith, we are intimidated because we feel uncomfortable doing it. We feel like we don't know enough. And if you know this about yourself or anybody else, when you go into a conversation intimidated, you also go into the conversation on the defensive. That's how you naturally start the conversation. If you are confident, you don't have to be on the defensive. If you are the confident, you can treat other people with respect. But if you start a conversation intimidated, um, and this is not always, sometimes you're just an angry person and you start the conversation angry and that's why you're angry. But if you start the conversation intimidated or in an intimidated way, then you are going to be on the defense. And it might put us in a place where we are not respectful to others. The quickest way to lose a spiritual battle is to get defensive, to name call, to fight fire with fire. A lot of reason we're intimidated is because we don't have the strength of the faith that we should have to believe the gospel that is true for us. If we grow in the gospel and believe the gospel, we won't be intimidated. It will be the surest thing that we have in our life, and we will be able to approach almost every situation with gentleness and respect. And it's even more difficult today to approach gospel proclamation with gentleness and respect because we can type up our thoughts and we can talk to another picture and make our minds believe that that is not another image bearer of God on the other end. And we say whatever we want. This is a weak way of defending the faith and it is a polluted way to present the gospel. So we need to be on guard, not only to share the gospel, not only to fix our eyes on Jesus, to put other people first before even our own problems, but also to deal with difficult situations and difficult people with gentleness and respect. There's one more commitment I want to give you, and I'm not going to spend as much time on this. I intended it that way. This is just going to be sort of the conclusion of all the thoughts. <clears throat> My last commitment, number seven, I'm going to disarm all of my enemies. I'm going to disarm all of my enemies. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I just want to conclude with this thought. And it's something we have discussed extensively in other passages at other times. Oftentimes we are persecuted or we face difficult times and we lose because the enemy has too much ammo, too much material. But then when we look at who supplied the enemy with that ammo, it's like the big reveal of the Scooby-Doo episode. You pull off the mask, turns out it was you that supplied the ammo the whole time. Joints, or whatever he says. Jinx, zoinks. Jinkies, all of those weird things. It turns out that the one that was giving the enemy the ammo the entire time was us. We often supply those who are against us with 
all the ammo they need to bring us back down to a lower level. This is in the way we live. This is the things we do and don't do. This is how we live inconsistently with what we say. Our faith is here. Our life is here. This is how we treat people in conversations and in the way we give them little respect when we demand respect. It turns out that we were the ones giving the enemy the ammo to fire the entire time. If your past drags you down, you give more ammo to your thoughts and to others by repeating the past. You cut off the supply, although you've probably given them a lot of ammo if you've got a sort of a sketchy past. You cut off the supply of ammo by cutting off the things of the past. Not by repeating those things. Not by continuing on in them. Not by making those same mistakes with someone else. You cut off the ammo supply by cutting off the works that got your enemy the ammo in the first place. I'm going to disarm my enemies, and one way I do that is not by falling into their traps again. But by cutting them off. I'm not going to live in a way that I'm going to supply. If they're going to persecute me, Peter says, it's going to be because I'm doing good, not because I'm supplying them with the ammo that they need to do it. Flee from those things. Those things that drag you down. And anything resembling those things. And turn to Christ. If you find that you're making people angry in every debate. And they are making you angry. Then examine your tactics. And examine your message. And stop giving them ammo. To have so much authority over your life. And so much power over your life. Place Christ at the forefront of your discussion. At least then, if you give them ammo, it will be the right type of bullets. I'll take a bullet for Christ, but I am so sick of taking bullets for Bryce. Peter says, not everyone will suffer for doing good. Actually, the, word, the wording here implies that its persecution will be unique. Uh, and... After studying this, I, I retract a little bit of my thought process, which gives me, it sort of sends me in a negative spiral anyway. We might face persecution, but it seems like it's the will of God for some people and not others, and it seems like it might be more unique than not. We all face difficulty, but persecution will be different. Peter says, not everyone will suffer for doing good, but um, some will. It is the path of some, but it is better to live with a good conscience and suffer for doing well than keep supplying your enemy with the material they need to keep bringing you down. One of the core tenets of our church is to flourish relationally. And in that statement, we say, we anticipate that as we live the gospel in everyday life, we will be faced with rejection. So we, we are committed to living lives in a way that the world will not reject us because of ungodly attitude and behavior. I'm going to live in a hopeful way. I am going to live in a hopeful way. I will not let my thoughts, my attitudes, my past, 
my present behavior affect the way that my mind thinks about God? Because he has done everything that I need to live, hopefully. At least to lean from realist to optimist instead of realist to pessimist. I'm going to live in a hope. Keep them. We cannot preserve them. But you have perfectly preserved our life through the work of Jesus Christ. You have given us a seat at your throne. You've given us hope for today and for a future. Help us to hold out that hope as number one in our lives as it pertains to the way we think about the way life is going. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in the Holy One, the I Am, the Great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.